the law school of america an excited utterance in the law of evidence is a statement made by a person in response to a startling or shocking event or condition it is an unplanned reaction to a startling event it is an exception to the hearsay rule the statement must be spontaneously made by the person the declarant while still under the stress of excitement from the event or condition the subject matter and content of the statement must relate to the event or condition the statement could be a description or explanation as required for present sense impression or an opinion or inference examples include look out we're going to crash or i think he's crazy he's shooting at us the basis for this hearsay exception is the belief that a statement made under the stress is likely to be trustworthy and unlikely to be a premeditated falsehood Compared to present sense impressions, excited utterance is broader in scope for permitting a longer time lapse between event and statement, and a wider range of content in the statement. Under the federal rules of evidence, an excited utterance is a hearsay exception, and is admissible to prove the truth of the statement itself, for example, in the case of the first quotation above, to prove that the vehicle the declarant was riding in was, in fact, about to crash. To prove the truth of the statement means to persuade the finder of fact to believe the affirmative sense of the statement. Truth here does not mean truth from the subjective point of view of the declarant or from the objective point of view of a reasonably prudent person. It simply refers to the affirmative assertion of the statement. Spontaneity of the declarant is a key to admissibility. An excited utterance does not have to be made at time of the startling event but must be made while the declarant is still in a state of surprise or shock from the incident. The declarant's reflective powers must be stilled, meaning that, while making the statement, the declarant would not have had a chance to reflect upon the startling event, fabricate a purposefully false statement, and then say it. If the declarant is believed to have had time to reflect on the situation before making the statement, the statement would not be spontaneous and thus not an excited utterance. However, under certain circumstances, it is possible for days to have passed before the declarant fully reflects on the event and unstills his or her reflective powers. Spontaneity is established by the declarant's demeanor, time-lapse, and content of the statement. The declarant's appearance of calmness at times lessens admissibility. Time-lapse between the startling event and the statement is a factor for both admissibility and weight. A statement made long after the event may be deemed less spontaneous than one made contemporaneously or shortly after. Outer limit of the permissible time-lapse can only be determined from the circumstances of a particular case. For example, if a declarant made a statement six days after a car crash due to the extent of his injuries, admissibility of the statement is diminished because of the significant passage of time. However, if evidence shows that he was continuously distraught and did not yet have a chance to reflect upon the crash, the statement could be admissible but may have less weight than if the statement had been made one hour after the crash. A complete and detailed statement may infer the lack of spontaneity as a narrative of a past completed event would require the declarant's reflection and organization. A similar case involved a woman who had been in a coma for 30 days following a car crash. When she awoke and was told what had happened, she exclaimed I must have fallen asleep. At trial, her statement was admitted even though a month had passed because the startling event was perceived to be the telling of the news, as opposed to the crash itself. In the law of evidence, a dying declaration is testimony that would normally be barred as hearsay but may in common law nonetheless be admitted as evidence in criminal law trials because it constituted the last words of a dying person. The rationale is that someone who is dying or believes death to be imminent would have less incentive to fabricate testimony, and as such, the hearsay statement carries with it some reliability. History. In medieval English courts, the principle originated of Nemo moratoris presumitor mentori, 
no one on the point of death should be presumed to be lying. An incident in which a dying declaration was admitted as evidence has been found in a 1202 case. Tests for admissibility. In common law, a dying declaration must have been a statement made by a deceased person who would otherwise have been a credible witness to their own death by murder or manslaughter, and was of settled hopeless expectation of death. United States. Under the federal rules of evidence, a dying declaration is admissible if the proponent of the statement can establish all of the following. The declarant's statement is being offered in a criminal prosecution for homicide, or in a civil action. Some states also permit the admission of dying declarations in other types of cases. He declarant is unavailable, this can be established using FRE 804A, 1, 5. The declarant's statement was made while under the genuine belief that his or her death was imminent. The declarant does not have to actually die. The declarant's statement relates to the cause or circumstances of what he or she believed to be his or her impending death. Other general rules of admissibility also apply, such as the requirement that the declaration must be based on the declarant's actual knowledge. The statement must relate to the circumstances or the cause of the declarant's own impending death. For example, in the dying declaration of Clifton Chambers in 1988, he stated that 10 years earlier, he had helped his son bury a man whom the son had killed by accident. The statement was sufficient cause to justify a warrant for a search on the son's property, and the man's body was indeed found. However, there was no physical evidence of a crime, and since Chambers was not the victim, his dying declaration was not admissible as evidence, and the son was never brought to trial. The first use of the dying declaration exception in American law was in the 1770 murder trial of the British soldiers responsible for the Boston Massacre. One of the victims, Patrick Carr, told his doctor before he died that the soldiers had been provoked. The doctor's testimony helped defense attorney John Adams to secure acquittals for some of the defendants and reduce charges for the rest. If the defendant is convicted of homicide but the reliability of the dying declaration is in question, there is grounds for an appeal. The future of the dying declaration doctrine in light of Supreme Court opinions such as Crawford v. Washington, 2004, is unclear. Crawford was decided under the Constitution's Confrontation Clause, not the common law. Opinions such as Giles v. California, 2008, discuss the matter, although the statements in Giles were not a dying declaration, but Justice Ginsburg notes in her dissent to Michigan v. Bryant, 2011, that the court has not addressed whether the dying declaration exception is valid after the Confrontation Clause cases. England and Wales the admissibility of hearsay evidence in criminal proceedings has been governed by the Criminal Justice Act 2003 which effectively replaced the common law regime and abolished all common law hearsay exceptions, except those preserved by, Section 118, including the dying declaration exception. An original statement made by a dead person may now be admissible under the statutory unavailability exception, Sections 114 and 116, subject to the court's judicial discretion preserved by Section 126, to exclude unreliable evidence, for example, the prejudicial value outweighs the probative value. Criticism. Since the 19th century, critics have questioned the credibility of dying declarations. In a state court case, the Wisconsin Supreme Court considered the issue of a dying declaration. The defense pointed out that his kind of evidence is not regarded with favor. The defense argued that several factors could undermine the reliability of dying declarations. Physical or mental weakness consequent upon the approach of death, a desire of self-vindication, or a disposition to impute the responsibility for a wrong to another, as well as the fact that the declarations are made in the absence of the accused, 
and often in response to leading questions and direct suggestions, and with no opportunity for cross-examination. All these considerations conspire to render such declarations a dangerous kind of evidence. India. Dying declarations are allowed as evidence in Indian courts if the dying person is conscious of his or her danger, he or she has given up hopes of recovery, the death of the dying person is the subject of the charge and of the dying declaration, and if the dying person was capable of a religious sense of accountability to his or her maker. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. The business records exception to the U.S. hearsay rule is based on Rule 8036 of the Federal Rules of Evidence, FRE. It is sometimes referred to as the business entry rule. Rationale. The basic rationale for the exception is that employees are under a duty to be accurate in observing, reporting, and recording business facts. The underlying belief is that special reliability is provided by the regularity with which the records are made and kept, as well as the incentive of employees to keep accurate records, under threat of termination or other penalty. The exception functions to allow the record to substitute for the in-court testimony of the employees, but it can only substitute for what the employee could testify about. The availability of the declarant, the employee whose testimony is being replaced by the record, is immaterial for the purposes of this exception. Reliability of the statements in the record. It must be apparent to the judge that the record was made in the regular course of business, for example, that it was customary practice to make such an entry and that the entrant had a duty to record it either by law or by the terms of his employment. The record must have been made at or near the time of the act, event, or transaction at issue. Furthermore, the record must consist of matters either within the personal knowledge of the entrant or within the personal knowledge of someone with a duty to transmit the information to the entrant. This last point was contested in the case of Johnson v. Lutz, 1930, which held that a business record is admissible only when it is made by an employee about information, obtained by him from an informant who himself was under a business duty to impart that information. Johnson dealt specifically with the admissibility of police reports, and set a limitation on the use of such reports in court. Even though the police officer was under a duty to properly record the statements of an informant, the informant himself was under no duty to report the events correctly, and therefore the informant's statement was still inadmissible hearsay. Limitation on admissibility of records prepared for litigation. In the case of Palmer v. Hoffman, 1943, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that an accident report created by a railroad company which was prepared in anticipation of a lawsuit by the victim was inadmissible, because it was not prepared in the regular course of business. Railroad travel, and not litigation, was the primary business of the railroad, and therefore the report was not considered sufficiently reliable to be admitted into evidence. Lack of record as evidence. FRE 8037 states the negative counterpart of the business records exception, the use of the lack of a record to prove that a transaction or occurrence had not taken place, if it was the regular practice of the business to record such events if they had actually occurred. Other types of business records. Under FRE 80317, market reports and quotations, directories, and other published compilations are considered generally admissible if they are generally used and relied upon by the public or by persons in particular occupations. Such information is considered admissible separate and apart from privately made business records described above. The party admission, in the law of evidence, is a type of statement that appears to be hearsay, an out-of-court statement, but is generally exempted, excluded from the definition of hearsay because it was made by a party to the litigation adverse to the party introducing it into evidence. Party admissions in U.S. law. In the USA, 
a party admission, in the law of evidence, is any statement made by a declarant who is a party to a lawsuit, which is offered as evidence against that party. Under the federal rules of evidence, such a statement is admissible to prove the truth of the statement itself, meaning that the statement itself is not considered hearsay at all. This is a category of exemptions to the inadmissibility of out-of-court statements. When the term exemption is used here, it does not mean that the statement is an exception to the hearsay rule. Rather, a party admission is classified as non-hearsay by the federal rules of evidence. The statement is admissible even if the declarant had no basis for knowing the truth of the statement. For example, if an employee rushes to tell the manager of a trucking company that one of his trucks has been in an accident, and the manager says, oh, we're behaving so negligently, lately, that statement will be admissible, even though the manager had no reason to know that this particular accident was the result of negligence. The exemption permits one party to offer the out-of-court statement of any opponent party. It may not be used by a party to offer that party's own out-of-court statement. However, under the common law doctrine of completeness, a party may possibly be able to admit some statements of their own, if a party admission exemption allows the opponent to admit part of a statement, and the first party wishes to admit the rest of that statement. The Rationale for the Rule The rationale for a party admission exception to hearsay exclusion can be mostly easily understood by reference to the rationale for the hearsay rule itself. Affidavit evidence consisting of out-of-court statements, is not subject to cross-examination. Affidavit evidence is thought to detract from the truth-finding mission of a trial. The accuracy or credibility of affidavits lack the transparency that cross-examination exacts, but, at least in civil cases, a party may be cross-examined or give an explanation or denial of its admission. In criminal cases, however, modern psychological interrogation techniques can cause innocent suspects to falsely admit to crimes. Therefore, depending on the context, Party admissions may advance, rather than detract from, the truth-finding mission. Distinction between party admissions and statements against interest. There is frequent confusion about whether a party admission must be a statement that is against the interests of its maker. The word admission connotes that the statement must be harmful. However, the party admission exemption does not in any way require that the admission be a representation against the party's interest, a statement against interest. Statements against interest made by other witnesses are sometimes admissible over the hearsay exception, but that is covered by a different exception. The statements against interest rule is different because 1. It is party neutral, the hearsay exemption is party specific. 2. The declarant must be unavailable. 3. The statement must be against the penal interest, under federal rules of evidence, or the fiscal or social interest, under the rules of states not following the federal rules. 4. The statements against interest rule has a rationale that is different from the party admission rule. The courts that created that exception assumed it unlikely that a person would make a statement against his own interest untruthfully. The party admission, as shown above, has nothing to do with this. Extensions of the rule. The reach of Rule 801d, 2, extends beyond simple statements of a party's own making, which is exempted under 801d, 2a. It also applies to statements made by others, if the party manifests belief in approval. Further, it applies to vicarious admissions, those made by a declarant authorized by the party to make the statement, or by a servant or agent, if it concerns a matter within the scope of the servant. Finally, it allows admission of any statement made by a co-conspirator in furtherance of the conspiracy, provided there is independent evidence of the conspiracy's existence. With regard to adoptive admissions, even a party's silence can be a basis for admitting evidence under this exemption.
In some jurisdictions, the court is required to let the jury consider whether the silence was an adoptive admission. The rule creates an issue in criminal prosecutions of multiple defendants. The use of a party admission of one defendant is not generally allowed to be considered against the second unless they are co-conspirators. The differing role of the party admission in federal and state law. The party admission rule is nearly universal in the U.S. Many states follow the federal rules of evidence, but some do not. Those states do not draw a distinction between exemptions and exceptions. However, the party admission is still admissible under all the same circumstances as in Rule 801D. The Law School of America The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation Incorporated under a Creative Commons Attribution, Share Alike License. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America